uh, Brian Draper speaking and I'm uh, with Daniel O'Connor today in the uh, well, college headquarters in Melbourne and uh, Daniel's agreed to speak to us about his uh, career and uh, uh, I know that Daniel was born in New Zealand and uh, started his work there so perhaps Daniel you could welcome to us and tell us about uh, how things got started with your mental health in New Zealand. So you'd like to know how I got into old age psychiatry? Mental health, old age psychiatry, you know, the, the career path. Oh, the whole path. Well, I decided that I would like to be a psychiatrist when I was 16. So at the, <laughs> I went to my careers advisor at school and said, how do I become a psychiatrist? He said, I have no idea. Nobody's ever <laughs> asked me that question before. But he was very kind, actually, and got me the address of the Director General of Mental Health in Wellington. And I wrote to him and said, how do I become a psychiatrist? And he wrote back, I wish I'd kept his lesson. Um, it would be very precious to me now. Um, uh, so I just can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, he's very well known. And he wrote back and said, well, we need psychiatrists really badly. I'm very pleased that you wrote to me. And if you work very hard at school and do very well in your exams, you could go to medical school because you have to become a medical doctor, which I didn't know. So that was news to me. <laughs> and then you get your medical qualification and then you do your training in psychiatry and we need psychiatrists really badly, so I hope it all goes well. And it did. So that was what I became. And uh, whereabouts did you uh, to study medicine and then in psychiatry? Uh, Auckland, so I went to Auckland Medical School. There were a large number of psychiatrists in my class. I think about 10 out of 60 of us became psychiatrists. Um, so I did uh, well, over half of my training at Keyseat Hospital, which is now closed. Uh, it was a 1920s sort of villa-style hospital set in beautiful gardens in the south of Auckland, in the countryside. And I loved it there. Um, uh, the superintendent at the time had the thought that it would be good to have um, what we called then a psychogeriatric unit. And he asked me, as an advanced trainee, to be the doctor who started that up and I was so flattered to be asked <laughs> that I said yes immediately without giving it any thought at all. Now, he asked me rather, must have been six of us I suppose, he asked me rather than the other five because we all had to cover the, the long stay psychogeriatric wards for people with severe dementia. Really. Because nursing homes were rare in those days. There's really nobody for people with very severe dementia to go to, or graduates from other long-stay wards within the hospital. So we all had to cover them when the GP, retired GP, who looked after the wards, had to go and dry out. <laughs> Which he did twice a year. <laughs> for two weeks. Very regularly. 
And so we all had to take turns doing that. And I know my colleagues mostly didn't enjoy it, but something you had to do. And I enjoyed it. I thought the nurses were really interesting people. I was amazed at their good humour, really, in working in these decrepit wards with beds just side by side, filling the entire wards, or oh, the old nightingale sort of beds, just terrible, really, with open bathrooms, just appalling, really. And but anyway, the nurses, for the most part, I thought were great and were really interesting people. They were interested in the patients uh, who were very severely disabled. And when I uh, went and looked at the patients' notes, of course they were often very thick, and I read their histories, and they seemed very interesting people to me. <laughs> they were kind of doing interesting things. So I um, spent quite a long time on the wards, really, and I think that was probably the first time the nurses had had, maybe for a long time, the experience of having a doctor <laughs> who was interested in them and what they were doing. So that we had, a, we just sort of had a great relationship, really. Um, and uh, so I, I, I presume that was what put it into Ian's mind to ask me to do that. So we set up a, a, a little admission unit, taking older people with any sort of problem coming into hospital with the idea in that English model that uh, rather than coming directly to long-stay wards, older people come to an acute ward for them, for their depression or psychosis or dementia or whatever it was, and we would try to get better. And they would go what, home. What year would that be this approximately? Would have, this would have been... Um, uh, 1982. So I was there for a year, uh, just sitting, just starting work, and, and some nurses were assigned to the unit. We had a social worker. Uh, I had a nominal supervisor, because I wasn't a consultant, of course, uh, who was great. Everybody was, everybody saw this as a really great thing to do. Uh, I still remember some of the patients <laughs> very well, some of whom got better, some didn't, but that was fine. Uh, the thing that strikes me looking back on it is that we did what everybody did in those hospitals, and that was to spend quite a lot of time with patients. I think we were good at that, actually. I think patients got a lot of attention and care, not a lot of time with families, and that's one of the big changes that I see really over the last you know several decades. Of course, we spoke to families, met with them, spoke to them on the phone, of course, we did, but not to a huge extent. There might have been a meeting at the beginning of the admission, maybe another meeting towards the end, and certainly nothing like the kind of contact that we had now. But anyway, I think the standard of care. You know, by the standards of the time, it was quite good. So I enjoyed it, and that gave me the idea of um, 
remaining in old age psychiatry. That wasn't the first old age psychiatry unit in Auckland. So there was one at the old Carrington Hospital that I had never been to as a trainee. I wasn't in that sort of rotation. Um, so that had been under the care of a GP who had come to work in psychiatry. Uh, so this was the second sort of unit in Auckland that I just... And the nurses and the social worker invented as we went along. And I read Felix Post's textbook on, I think it might have been called psychogeriatrics. Uh, and that was, that was what I did. So when you completed your training, yeah. Did you stay in New Zealand as a consultant in old no, age? No, so that would have been the obvious thing to do. Um, and that's what most of my colleagues did. But I just got the idea into my head that I would go to the UK. I'd been there before. I'd done my elective as a sixth-year medical student at St Christopher's Hospice in London, working as a very lowly student with Cicely Saunders and her colleagues in that kind of world's first hospice world. Um, and uh, so I had the idea, I suppose, of going back to the UK. I had the idea of learning about research. I don't quite know where that idea came from. We still, we back in those days, had to do a small research project and write it up. Um, and I'd done this small project. It was completely inept, really. It would never have got past any ethics committee now on dexamethasone suppression tests in people with dementia. And wrote that up, and that was part of my project. Uh, and it had been an enjoyable experience, even if it went nowhere and found nothing and it was a complete waste of time, really. Um, but I liked it, and I liked reading articles in journals. And somehow I got the idea that if I went to the UK, I could get a job in psychiatric research. And other people, being better organised, would have maybe written to people ahead of time and set something up to go to. <laughs> Didn't even cross my mind to do that. I just thought I would just turn up and something would happen. What happened? Well, <laughs> I got to London and uh, spent a long time getting there. So that was part of the adventure. Uh, really going through India and Pakistan and Turkey and Israel and all sorts of really interesting places. Uh, so I got a job immediately, which we could do then. I just walked in, applied for a job, and got it. So I worked as a locum senior registrar for a year, doing really interesting things, actually. And some of them were to do with old age, psychiatry, in. Old London mental hospitals, which was an eye opener. But most of it was spent in 
what was then a brand new regional secure unit. That's Bernard's Hospital in Ealing. So the regional secure units were for people either coming from prison for treatment of their mental illness in a secure setting or people who were stepping down from secure psychiatric hospitals like Broadmoor. So they were sort of on their way back to the community through the regional security. And I'd never done any forensic security before. So it was my job to go to the London prisons to assess people who'd been referred to the unit, except the unit was brand new and we had no beds to admit people to. So I would go and assess people for admission to non-existent <laughs> beds. So I'd do these amazing letters that would go on for page after page after page because that's how we do things. Nobody does this now. And at the end, the final paragraph, you would say, <laughs> we would love to admit this person, <laughs> but unfortunately... We can't, yours, etc. <laughs> and they paid me to do this, which I thought was extraordinary, really. So that went on for, and, uh, but I just kept my eye uh, on the situations vacant column in the British Medical Journal each week. And uh, kind of as time went on, thinking that my. Uh, goal to get a sort of a research job was maybe not going to come off because there were very few jobs like the one I had in my imagination. In fact, there were none really. <laughs> there were clinical jobs, but that wasn't exactly what I wanted. And then I was sitting on the tube one day leaping through this British Medical Journal, and there was an advertisement saying that a registrar or trainee was required for a one-year research project at Hughes Hall in Cambridge on dementia in the community. And it would be helpful for the applicant to have some psychogeriatric experience. So I sent off my letter and uh, I had no idea whether there would be two applicants or 20 or 200 or no sense at all, but I got an interview and went up to Cambridge, which was very exciting and uh, sat in a room like this with maybe 10 other people. So we'd all been called at the same time. So we had to, I was last. So I had to spend an entire after. It was a terrible way to do things. It was quite cruel, really. Uh, so you just had to wait and wait and wait as people came out and left and. So I went in and 
uh, I think I was <laughs> probably so over it by the time I went to, but I felt quite relaxed, really, with this rather imminent interview pattern, including the president of the college, Martin Roth, and goodness knows who, um, and talked about my background and my experience and so on, and then it was over, and... I was asked to wait outside for 10 minutes, which nobody else had been, and I got called back in and offered the job. So I said yes. <laughs> I didn't even know what they were paying, really. <laughs> so that was how that happened. So that was for one year. Uh, in the first instance, so the project was funded by the Wolfson Trust. And the Wolfsons were um, a phenomenally generous family that funded and still fund um, university departments, university positions, museums, art galleries. Oh, just extraordinary, and so they funded my research project. And the connection between the college and the Wolfson Trust was Martin Roth. So that was his role to be that kind of link, really. So I'm sure they gave the college money for me because Sir Martin had kind of thought it was a good idea. Uh, so it was me and I worked with Penelope Pollitt, who was a sociologist who came from Melbourne uh, via Cuba. Uh, and she'd been in the UK for 20 years. She'd worked with John Cooper in Nottingham on his big community studies of schizophrenia, uh, looking at people with schizophrenia and their families over a period of time. Uh, so she had, uh, that was a great background, actually. Uh, so there was the two of us together working for a year, and um, obviously people thought it was going well. Uh, our ideas for it, it just came to my head, really. I just made it up as, <laughs> as I went along. But, um, the, it just became more and more ambitious. Really, and so at the end of one year, we got a an extension, a twelve month extension, and then another year, and then another year. I think we had nearly five years in total. Just kind of in the Wolfson. Sir David Wolfson used to drive up from London in his Rolls Royce for lunch with <laughs> the college president and Martin. And Penny and me, and we would have a very nice lunch. The college made a big fuss over him. We had nice food and nice wine. And we would tell him what we had done. And he would say, oh, excellent. Well done. And then we'd get a letter a week later saying, here's a check. He would send a check just for the, a year. <laughs> and I would be given the check. This is how extraordinary it was. So we employed uh, people 
uh, research assistants uh, to help us. All part time, you know, as you can imagine, with these sort of community studies. And I would take the check around to the bank and um, bank it. And then every Friday afternoon, I would pay our interviewers and calculate their tax and post the check to them. And then at the end of the year, I'd be asked for an account. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I could have embezzled the whole lot and flown off to Biarritz, never to be seen again. It was just incredible, really, that they would have trusted somebody. Now you would no more do that than fly to the moon. It was extraordinary, really, but it was cheap. Our overheads were minimal. Um, there was minimal bureaucracy. We were just left to get on and do things. So you, you did get on and do it. And, yes. and that five-year project, uh, clearly it's, it's a project that those of us in the field know very well, all the new community prevalence of a variety. Time. I think you're very generous, brother. No, not generous at all, uh, Daniel. Uh, 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 the... Uh, the data from that project about problem behaviours, about interventions, yeah. and what happened a year later, and yes. so forth, and uh, and uh, you know what what did what did the, uh, from a psychiatry of old age perspective of things, what things did this project teach you? Well, uh, the idea of the project was to look at uh, dementia in the community. So the idea was to uh, in one year go out find some people with dementia by one means or another and talk to them and talk to their families and find out about their lives and see how they were getting on, uh, which we could have done in a year. Uh, you know, going to um, the psychiatrics clinical service, GPs, whatever, um, but we had the idea that that, of course, would be to look at people who had come to the attention of mental health services, which obviously was a tiny proportion of all people with dementia. So the idea was that we would have to go and find people with dementia for ourselves, which meant doing what became an epidemiological survey trying to get as close to the grassroots as possible. So we worked through GPs. So we did a count of people with uh, dementia using, really, by that, by the standards of the time, really good diagnostic, clinical diagnostic techniques based on interviews with some neuropsychological testing and informants interviews. And those diagnoses proved to be very robust. So we were testing that way of working clinically, uh, diagnostically in the community, demonstrating that we could make valid diagnoses based on two years of uh, follow-up. Uh, we worked through GPs, so we were able to look at uh, how GPs viewed dementia, which in those days was very negatively. Uh, of course, it's very different now, mostly. 
Uh, we were, I think, some of the very first people to work with the families of people with dementia who had been found using sort of, you know, really genuinely representative case-finding uh, techniques to talk to people looking after somebody with dementia from the very earliest stages of dementia through to people with the most extraordinarily severe dementia, some of whom were still at home. We also included people in nursing homes and long-stay hospital wards for the sake of completeness. Uh, so we were able to look at that and what was uh, their experience and what they found um, most challenging. And that was an eye-opener, really, because they didn't necessarily find challenging behaviours, the overt positive behaviours, the most difficult to bear. It was the negative behaviours, really, the withdrawal, the apathy, the inertia, the lack of interest in family news and activities that really hurt the most. Uh, we also uh, passed on to, with people's permission, obviously, if they lived in, a, in half, one half of the city of Cambridge, we passed on with their permission, their details to a small brand new team of mental health nurses whose job it was to support people in the community with uh, dementia. And one question, sort of a natural experiment, really. So the idea was to see if that would reduce the numbers of people who were admitted to nursing homes. Just providing people with advice and support at home and linkages to other services will reduce admissions to care. And in fact, it doubled <laughs> admissions to care, um, which took us by surprise. That wasn't what was supposed to have happened. But uh, I think the lesson for that was is that if you offer interest and support to people, but you have nothing to offer more than is usually available, that what you set up is a path into residential care because you're, you're kind of alerting carers to the fact that you think they've got a big problem, which they did. And you're wanting to help them. You're seeing them struggling. And the only pathway that's open to you is the pathway to residential care. And that's the pathway that people take, which was a, a warning sign, really, that if you're going to support people at home, you have to think through ahead of time what practical things you can do to help them remain at home if that's what they want to do, which was what most people did want to do. So we got that wrong, uh, really. We had not thought through the, the, what, the, the whole meaning of caring for people in the community and the unintended consequences of reaching out to people. Uh, 
So there was some naivety on our part there. But nobody um, else had really tried that. So it's not, it's, really not, tried it's not so as if you had warning signs from other no, groups. No, no, no. Uh, that, to me, was one of the most important messages of, of yeah. that project. Uh, and I agree, uh, you know, that, that, that was, you know, one of the headlines that I got the message on because I was very involved in practical community care at that point in my career, mid to late 80s, I think, approximately. And and so that's what we were doing. And it was certainly, yeah, it was a, an interesting insight into what could happen if we weren't careful. So how did that then lead to you coming... So there's five years in the UK or the extra year. How did you then get into get to Melbourne? By chance. Because by that time, the professor of psychiatry in Cambridge was Jim Pakel, who came from New Zealand. And he got lots of requests from people all over the world, academic psychiatrists all over the world, to come and visit him, just to say hello, because people did that. Now, I don't know whether they do that much now but in those days it was actually very common just to come and have a cup of tea and talk and so he was asked uh, uh, he got a letter from Peter oh god uh, he was professor of psychiatry in Perth a lovely man Perthal. Peter Burville. Peter Burville. That's right. Now, Peter Burville wrote to Jean to say, I'm going to be in Cambridge and come and have a cup of tea with you. And Jean's secretary, who was a very frightening lady, rang me up and said, Professor Pacon was far too busy to see this Professor Burville from Perth and Western Australia. And because you come from New Zealand, we wondered if you could talk to him. I said, I don't Quite happy to. <laughs> I'd never heard of Peter Verbal. Anyway, he was lovely. He was really nice. And uh, so he asked me what I was doing, and I told him, and he said, that sounds really interesting. Did you know that Monash University has been looking for a year or more for a professor of old age or psychogeriatrics then? And I said, where's Monash University? <laughs> and he said, well, it's in Melbourne. And I'd never been to Melbourne. I didn't say, where's Melbourne? I didn't know where Melbourne was. But I'd never been there. I'd never heard of Monash University. And he said, um, oh, well, I think you should write to Graham Smith, who was head of the department. So I knew that I didn't want to stay in Cambridge so I could, if I'd stayed, I would have been a consultant psychiatrist. And uh, I didn't want to do that. But, uh, I'm not quite sure why, but I And I don't know, this sounded kind of interesting. <laughs> so I wrote to Graham Smith, who wrote back immediately. And I think this was even before faxes. I don't know whether faxes existed then. I think we wrote proper letters. And uh, he wrote back and said, how extraordinary, I'm going to be in England next month and I would love to come to Cambridge to meet you. So he did. And uh, uh, 
Martin Roth gave him lunch, which was very nice of him. Graham is very impressed with that. <laughs> I think that probably sort of <laughs> clinched the deal, really. And anyway, so he was very uh, he was very positive, and they clearly had been looking for somebody for a while. The fact that I was writing up my ND at that time, but hadn't completed it, didn't seem to bother him particularly. <laughs> the fact that I hadn't even worked as a consultant psychiatrist didn't seem to bother him. In fact, nothing seemed to bother him particularly. I think he was very impressed with the whole Cambridge thing. And uh, it's a bit of a snob, really, if the truth be known. And then he said, well, you would, you would have to come to Melbourne and be interviewed. And I said, they were going to pay me and all this. So I came out and spent a week in Melbourne going around talking to people, chatting to people who were all lovely. They were delightful. You know, psychiatrists, uh, geriatricians, academics, people in the Department of Health, as it then was, who were going to fund the position, because it was a professor-director position, which Victoria did back then. I don't know whether that was a New South Wales thing or not. So you had to be a director of a service. And then I had an interview. And then flew back and uh, got a letter saying, no, I was offered the position here, actually. And I accepted it on the spot. <laughs> um, and then flew back. And it was uh, might have been a year before I actually arrived. And I really had not given any thought at all to what the position would Table <laughs> zero, apart from the chats, which were of a very general nature because it was a new job, nobody had given it much thought really at all. It seemed like a good idea. Uh, so, Monash had was in a growth phase at that time, so there'd been Graham, of course, as head of department. And so at the same time as my appointment came up, uh, Bruce Tong was appointed as Professor of Child and Child Psychiatry, just Child Psychiatry. Uh, and Paul Mullen came a bit later as Professor of Forensic Psychiatry. Um, Bruce Tong, um, Bruce Singh uh, was there for a period, we overlapped. Um, so the department kind of quadrupled in size within uh, a year or two. All of the new people were professor directors, professor director people. Uh, uh, and so I arrived and so worked what, things out. What did you... At when you arrived, what was it there for you to direct? A service. So uh, at that time, uh, all age mental or psychogeriatric services, they, as they were then called, were actually, um, we, they were evolving rapidly, but with a very clear model. Uh, 
So there was a, a hospital base with uh, uh, acute and long-stay beds. Uh, I went in two bases. There were there were two of these places in, in Melbourne. Ed Chu was running the psychogeriatric department, I suppose you'd call it, at Mont Park in the north of Melbourne. And that was very well established by that time. It will tell you for exactly how long. Uh, so it had a community, it had an inpatient unit, long stay wards, and a community team, very much in the Tom Airy model, which we'd all read in the Felix Post book. <laughs> so that's what everybody uh, did. And I went to Heatherton Hospital, uh, which was a refurbished infectious diseases hospital and it had become a psychiatric hospital after the number of people with TB kind of had dropped off to the point where you didn't need a hospital to look after them. After all the Vietnamese boat people had arrived, they'd all had their TB treated. Uh, so this place had been turned into a psychiatric hospital to facilitate the closure of the old Willsmere Hospital, which had been the Q Mental Asylum, which had morphed into a psychogeriatric hospital. That wasn't how it had begun, but that's what it had ended up as in terrible conditions. So all of this, or many of the staff from Willsmere had come to Heatherton. There was also an adult part, and I came to be director of what had been set up two years previously, an acute psychogeriatric inpatient unit, three long-stay wards, and a community team. And it was a really nice accommodation uh, and with great teams. Really, the nurses were all very experienced mental health nurses. Uh, they had chosen to work with elderly people. I've worked at, at Willsmere, they've come to Heaverton. I think they enjoyed the new environment and ambience, which was lovely, um, and just got stuck in. So that wasn't that hard, really. Uh, That's about 1990. That would have been 1990. Yeah. That was 1990. And um, uh, so I was director of that uh, with two psychiatrists and me. Uh, and I had a big clinical load and did some very inept management because I had no experience in, no experience in managing a clinical service whatsoever. We knew how to cash checks. 
I knew how to write checks. I knew how to write checks. I could write checks and calculate tax. But so that was a steep learning curve then. That was that was yes, and it was um, of course absolutely it was ridiculous. It was completely absurd. But that was normal then, and there weren't even books to read on how to manage. <laughs> I mean, how to be a manager, how to be a clinical manager. There, there are now. I mean, there are great resources to read about, you know, uh, you know, analysing need and gaps and thinking about quality and safety and measuring a few bits and pieces, maybe, and dealing with people and uh, kind of the law in relation to um, employing people. Like, you just can't sack people because you feel like a not that I ever tried. Um, and, you know, the ethical aspects of running uh, Sir, I, there are lots of resources now for people who are interested, and, but I don't think they existed then. Um, so what, what was the expectation, or what was your expectation of the academic side of that problem? Well, um, nobody had any expectations at all, really. Uh, I had to do some teaching. Uh, that was clear, and but that was fine. I, I had done some teaching uh, before and liked that, uh, and I got drawn into looking after medical students and running programs for them, not just in old age psychiatry, but across the board. So I took over the Monash University undergraduate teaching program. You took over the undergraduate teaching program. What were your challenges there? The challenges were finding places for them to go to because they were all sent to um, uh, a couple of big hospitals in blocks, a big block once a year. So all these Monash students would just arrive uh, for people who had no interest in them, had zero thought about what to do with them and they mucked around for six weeks and then did an exam and it was shocking really that this was a way to prepare medical students for the future whatever they might become GPs or physicians or something let alone psychiatrists I mean I thought why would anybody exposed to such terrible experiences choose to become a psychiatrist? <laughs> that was my problem, really. So uh, we changed all of that and sent them to a much larger number of places, including country mental health services, who were fantastic. And they could put them up in their old nurses' homes, and they looked after them beautifully. And private psychiatric hospitals, so we started sending them to private psychiatric hospitals, which I thought was a great experience for people who were going to become GPs or physicians or surgeons. They would see people with the kind of problems that 
you're much more likely to see in, in a primary care setting or general hospital setting. So that worked really well. So a lot of time setting that up. And I would go around and visit them and help examine them. And you know, that was an excellent way of getting hospitals on board and keeping up their morale and their commitment to medical students. That we took an interest in them and not, they weren't just places to fob students off to, to get them out of the way. So there was a big lesson there in how to look after medical student programs and care for the teachers and support them. So that was part of it. So that took up quite a bit of my time. And then I was left entirely to my own devices to develop research uh, things, projects. So I had funding for a senior research fellow, if that was, that, um, maybe it was, senior research fellow. And I, so I advertised for a psychiatrist to join me and we advertised around the world actually in the British Medical Journal and Canadian Medical Journal and New Zealand, Australian New Zealand Medical Journal and got no applicants at all uh, from anybody much, really. And so I appointed a psychologist, Richard Roseman, uh, to, to join me. Uh, he had a background in ageing uh, with Howard Kendick uh, from uh, La Trobe uh, University. So we set up this little... Um, unit uh, and did some work with GPs, uh, looking at the recognition and care of people with uh, depression in general practice, uh, and got a few grants, and it sort of developed from there. But my the fact that my clinical work and clinical duties took up the majority of my time meant that research really was squeezed into what was left of the weekends. And interesting, Bruce Tong, who was appointed, I think, a year before me in child psychiatry, handed over his director role to somebody else very quickly because he was clever and he had sussed out the lie of the land. I think he worked out very quickly that you just can't do these two things. If you try, one of them is going to suffer. So he did that. Uh, and that's what I... Looking back on it, maybe should have done too. Except I liked my clinical work and I liked, um, I don't know that I ever did manage the service in any technical sense. We had a manager who did the, you know, the budgets and I don't know, all the rest of it, the things that managers do. Uh, but we had a series of managers and I had a I really enjoyed working with all of them, uh, actually, because 
I don't. I think they quite like the lift to do the management, as long as I didn't manage the doctors and kept the clinical service working well and happily. I think if you're managing a service that is unhappy and dysfunctional and generating complaints and everybody unhappy and stressed and then who would want to be a manager of that or to manage a service that's humming along quite nicely I, they seem to find quite agreeable so so I did that and they did all um, you know the calculators and going to the executive meetings I tried to minimize I had to go to some executive meetings but I would try and minimize that and this was in the days before um, management meant measuring many, many things being audited, reporting up. Um, we didn't have accreditation back then. It hadn't been thought of. It didn't exist. Um, it was it was a very clinical kind of role, and then of course it did change. And I got caught up in that, obviously, uh, but I didn't mind it as long as the manager did the, what I saw as being the not very interesting kind of <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so over, over the course of well. Last maybe 30 years now. Yeah. Um, what changes have you observed in uh, old age mental health service delivery in Victoria? I mean, which has been obviously where you've, oh, been, able, well, you, you've been able to observe that. There obviously must have been some significant oh, changes. Yes. Look, so I came at a time, so uh, I came and I ended up being the old age psychiatrist, the senior old age psychiatrist who worked most closely with the Department of Health. So Ed, I think, um, was making his way on the international sort of scene uh, with the um, uh, International Psychiatric Association that was just beginning then. So he, he was very involved in that. Uh, and, but uh, so I got involved in working with the uh, Department of Health, the mental health branch of the Department of Health, where I now work, as it happens. And also with the college. So I, I had, it, it had no interest in working with college, and I did. I quite liked the college, actually where we're sitting today. Uh, so we carved, we sort of divided those things up. So, uh, but it was a good time to arrive because um, my position had been funded by the department, because of the department's interest in developing psychogeriatrics. So the interest was there, the commitment was there, and the money 
was there. Because in those days, mental health services were run from the department in a way that they still are in some states. But in Victoria, everything to do with mental hospitals, mental health services came out of Collins Street, 555 Collins Street. So I had a lot to do with those people. So they were genuinely interested in psychogeriatrics and genuinely interested in growing services. And their plan was to grow services along the lines of uh, uh, locally based aged persons or psychogeriatric services that had a community team, an inpatient service, and some long stay provision for people who couldn't be cared for in nursing homes. So um, I worked with those two people in the branch. They were both social workers by background. They were lovely. And we wrote uh, uh, sort of a framework of care, really, document that still stands. It has never been superseded. <laughs> and you have to work hard to find it, though. And it described, it was very simple. You could have written it in a day, I have no doubt. Uh, it just described those elements and how they would work together and some very basic principles of good care. It was really very simple. And that was sort of how things went. So the idea was that there would be psychiatric services in regional cities. And increasingly, as that big psychiatric megalopolis wound down, that money would go out to uh, local hospitals. And that was what happened. So it, I'd already, I was already at Heatherton Hospital. That was one of these new places, probably one of the earliest. And Ed's base at Mont Park was closed, and he moved to St George's, part of St Vincent's Hill, and then there were more and more places. And then the director of mental health had this amazing idea, which I thought was doomed to failure, of applying to the Commonwealth Government to turn these old long-stay beds into nursing home beds for which the Commonwealth Government would pay nursing home subsidies. And I said to him, why would they agree to that? And he said, well, they want us to close these psychiatric hospitals. It was part of the first National Mental Health Plan. That's how old this was. So the National Mental Health Plan said that state governments, or jurisdictions, would wind down their standalone mental health hospitals and the Commonwealth Government would support that um, by, for example, uh, handing over land that the Commonwealth 
had owned uh, and had no use for things like that. And he said, I think I'll go for them. And I said, I don't think they will. Because <laughs> mental health was very much a state responsibility, as it still is. So I thought, why did they agree to pay so many dollars per bed, per day, in perpetuity for people who had previously been a state government responsibility? And so he wrote off for this letter to somebody in Canberra. And lo and behold, <laughs> they said, yes, if you close your psychiatric hospitals, that's the deal. And we will agree to do that. So that was how Victoria came to have its very significant number of psychogeriatric nursing home beds. So I... Uh, Going along with that was signing the death sentence to Heatherton Hospital. That was part of it was going to close. So Victoria closed its mental hospitals, its psychiatric hospitals, way ahead of any other state. It signed up to the mental health plan and took it seriously and wanted to get that money out into the community. All the other states dragged their heels for years and years and years. It was extraordinary, really. Uh, but because Victoria kind of accepted that challenge and saw the benefits for people in Victoria in doing so, it was kind of the beneficiary of some Commonwealth largesse. Uh, really, so the Commonwealth still pays... But didn't Victoria still Victoria still pay some contribution? Yes, yeah, so it, it, it made a top up. Yeah, made a top so up. That's yeah. right. So the, the the nursing home subsidies were exactly what any community nursing home got. The idea was that the psychogeriatric nursing homes would be for uh, older people primarily with mental illness, serious persistent mental illness, or dementia accompanied by very severe behavioural or psychological symptoms who would not be able to get the care they needed in community nursing homes. So the state government topped up that subsidy by a, another third, roughly, um, and that went to the staff. So we got extra uh, staffing to support that extra care and these facilities still exist 20 years later and are reaching probably the end of their working life in some cases. You mean in terms of the building? In terms yeah. of the building fabric. Uh, so that, that was a huge um, uh, change if you like and uh, uh, one that other states uh, in old age mental health looked on envy uh, as to reasons why the other states didn't follow. I think there's a lot of complicated answers to that. But, oh, sure. um, uh, it, but certainly it's a model that other states have, have uh, tried to emulate or wanted to emulate people that have. What other 
elements of uh, how you provided services here that you observe a part of, do you, do you think were also ahead uh, of setting a standard, if you like? Um, well, when we say set a standard, that sort of means that what we did was kind of maybe better than existed elsewhere. I don't know that that's the case. I kind of like to think it was because, uh, I, but I have no way of proving it. Um, what we had then, and still do actually, I would like to think, is enthusiasm. So the, uh, as um, the number of psychogeriatric services uh, increased, not just in Melbourne, but in places like Bendigo, Ballarat, Shepparton, Warrnambool, Trelgan, uh, they all had psychogeriatric services as part of their mental health service. They were all new. Uh, I knew all of the old age uh, psychiatrists. Um, so they were mostly um, not exclusively young, uh, but they were often young. Uh, you know, they were keen. Uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm. We used to get together um, uh, in the department uh, to you know, discuss issues and questions. Um, and they were fun meetings. People were keen to come to them. Uh, uh, KG who was Deputy Chief Psychiatrist way, not back right at the beginning, but later, set up annual get-togethers of people for a whole day to have talks and so on, uh, which were resurrected just recently. Uh, so I think it was a good spirit. Um, but there was no thought then of doing what you do now, which is to kind of benchmark and compare f formally using some kind of structured approach and you know, to give people feedback about how they were doing compared to what other people were doing, either locally or nationally. Uh, we didn't think of that. Uh, really, I think we just thought we were doing it. We, we believed we were doing a great job and that carried the day, really. In, in uh, you know, hearing you speak about this period, particularly in the 90s, uh, it seems to me the big contrast that I can see between Victoria and my state of New South Wales is support from the top of the mental yes, health the ones. hierarchy. The all, the uh, that, that they accepted that meant that the mental, state mental health services had a significant role yes. in old age mental health yes. uh, across the board in long-term care as well as uh, acute care. care. Whereas I think in New South Wales, for example, there was never that level of support, certainly not the long-term care, but acute care a little bit. So that seemed to be, to me, the con a contrast. I mean, that's changed in New South Wales, of course, but, yes. but, but in that era that we're talking about where these nursing homes were set up or the... the starting point. Yes, it was a good time in Victoria. I mean, it was. Um, I came at the very, very, very end cusp of the Kane, John Kane government, which had been a Labour government. Uh, so I missed the bulk of that time, which the, uh, my colleagues at the time still remember. The old my 
well, we'll see young colleagues too. My younger colleagues would never have heard of them, I suppose, really. Um, but it was seen as being a very progressive, community-minded um, government that was willing to invest in uh, community support to people with mental illness, including for children and older people and for prisoners. So Thomas Emblem Hospital was kind of conceived of at that time. Uh, I think everybody recognised that the care of mentally ill prisoners was abysmal, really, and had to improve. So they were... Uh, they, they were very supportive of that. Um, as I say, the people in the department often had a nursing and social work type background. So again, very uh, interested in people's lives and families as well. I think that was always kind of supportive. And I think it was just, uh, I was... Um, just lucky and arrived in Victoria at that time. If I'd gone to South Australia or Queensland or Western Australia, things would have been very different indeed, not because of me, but because of the time that I just happened to arrive at. Yes. So you mentioned earlier that um, that working with the college has been, has been something yeah. that you've... Uh, uh, part of and just in the early 2000s that's when within faculty uh, you became chair of faculty uh, I can't remember the exact years 2003 maybe around there but early 2000s so maybe you could just talk a little bit about that experience that you had uh, yes so well, we had had a section here uh, which Ed and David Ames were very so I well, actually to say that Ed wasn't involved in the college was he was interested in the section so he was involved in that and uh, so we would have meetings in the old college building up in Rathdown Street a few times a year there'd be a speaker which might have included me from time to time and so that was a great forum to meet other psychiatrists interested in old age psychiatry and people came who weren't necessarily working in old age psychiatry, but were interested in the topic and so on. Trainees came. Uh, so I always attended those and participated in those. Uh, and then I became involved with the college in things like examining example. So I ended up having a, quite a lot to do with the college, um, uh, really. Then I was chair of the Victorian branch of the section of faculty. Simon Stefacci is my secretary. And that was fun. I enjoyed working with Simon. And so I would participate in, do we have monthly teleconferences maybe? With, I can't remember who was chair then. And then 
I sort of inherited the bi-national chair position after that. I suppose it was in the early 2000s. Um, and Pat Melding and I ran an IPA meeting where we wrote a rule yep. as during that time or about that time. It was 2005. 2005. Yeah. Had Pam been chair? Anyway, I can't remember all the details. So uh, that was really that being chair for a period was what got me sort of really involved in sort of uh, faculty activities and got me onto general council because the chair at that time was on general council, sort of ex officio. And that was how I got involved in so many other college things that sort of just happened because I was in here regularly getting to know the college staff, managers, and got involved in all sorts of interesting things, uh, really including running the special uh, STP, special training program funded by the Commonwealth, and I headed that up for a number of years, really, uh, and that's still running. So, yeah. What uh, role do you have now, Daniel? Uh, I, well, <laughs> after 25 years at Monash University and Monash Health, I thought they needed a change. I think I needed a change too, and I thought they needed a change. Um, and so I gave notice, I gave them a year's notice to leave, which was a mistake. You can give too much notice, actually. <laughs> um, don't give too much, is my advice to people. Uh, and, but at that, and I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, and at that time, we had a problem the mental health thing. Quite a big problem, really. So I had to notify the chief psychiatrist who came and visited us to check us out and make sure we'd solved this problem. This was Mark Oakley Brown, and he arrived an hour early by mistake. <laughs> so we were just sitting chatting, and I told him I was leaving, and he said, Oh, why don't you? become deputy chief psychiatrist and I thought what a terrible idea I can't imagine a worse idea really <laughs> why do I want to be deputy chief psychiatrist and so we just left it there really and then I went away and thought about it and uh, well actually Mark just said you could do whatever you wanted really <laughs> uh, five years later, uh, here I am. So uh, it was envisaged as being kind of an old age type deputy chief psychiatrist role, but also I would have to do you know other things. 
So obviously 95% of my time is spent doing other things, but we have built up the old age portfolio. So we have gone to visit all of those psychogeriatric nursing homes. They're now called aged persons mental health residential aged care facilities. That rolls off your tongue very well. It does roll off your tongue very well. So, uh, because the question was, these places are spread out in all over the place, really, in regional centres or suburban streets, looking after people with very severe illnesses and disabilities. How did we know as a department, what the standard of care was. And we might have popped into them from time to time. We would have met the psychiatrists going into them from time to time. But how did we as a department know really what they're all accredited, of course, by you know the quality agency. But the quality agency had said that Oakden Nursing Home in South Australia was exemplary, <laughs> and I'd said that multiple times. So that was of no value whatsoever. So we've done that, and we're making the last of those visits in two weeks' time. It's taking a long time. Um, we are now beginning to work with people in age versus mental health services to do what uh, Kate Jackson uh, and um, colleagues in New South Wales have done, and that is to write a framework of care for age mental health services. So what does the department, what, do the, well, really, what is the department acting on behalf of the people of Victoria expect an aged mental health services to look like and to do and how would you know that it's doing that to an acceptable standard so we start that ball rolling tomorrow afternoon uh, uh, we're also visiting all of our ECT services and that's not an old age specific thing, but old people in Victoria who are head of population get more ECT, as you'd expect, than younger people. So we've been visiting ECT services uh, with the director and coordinator of our, another ECT service and a carer and consumer consultant. Spend a day with every ECT service, checking that they're doing what we say they should do. Public and private? No, we have no jurisdiction over private hospitals at all. Zero. They, they run themselves. So this is just public. We have 27 ECT sites, so that's 27 days of visits. So it's a big job. Uh, so we're two-thirds of the way through that. And it's been really interesting to see they all know what we're telling other services. So the standard of practice has visibly improved 
over the course of 18 months. Uh, so we now have aged mental health forms. So we had one couple of months ago. Uh, it's our second one. Resurrecting what KG had done all those years ago to get people from across the sector to come together for a day just to have some interesting speakers and panel discussions and forums and whatever seems interesting and fun uh, just to have people have a good time and be stimulated and learn something. Uh, so Jared came down and spoke on anxiety disorders and old people, which people really like, and so on. Okay. Well, I think that brings us up to current day, and uh, I think we, you've been very generous with your time with us today, uh, Daniel, oh, and God, I've really God. enjoyed this talk with you. So thank you for coming along, and uh, it's been wonderful to hear things over your career and the various things that you've witnessed and been part of. So thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.